Father, for it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it is your word that brings stability into our souls. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray you would help us to understand the things that we study. The Holy Spirit would make clear to us the relevance of these things to our own lives. And that we can continue to advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two announcements in case, two or three announcements in case there are those who are still dawdling on their way to class. There's more personal application in that than maybe noted. Jim's up there hauling boxes around. Anyway, I've been asked to announce that there will be a New Year's Eve party for the congregation at the Regal's home. So if you want information on that, you need to call Linda to find out time and place and all of those things. And that's wonderful of them to open their home like that. Second announcement is that I have uh, one of the things that I was asked to do when I first came to the church was to revise the doctrinal statement. Not that we were changing any doctrines per se. It is just that it needed to be worked over with a fine-tooth comb. Some of the verses, I noticed when I uh, was candidating that some of the verses didn't really fit some of the points, that some of the uh, things needed to be said more precisely. There were a couple of other things that weren't said that well. As every generation progresses in false teaching and distorted teaching develops, you always have to modify your doctrinal statements so you include the right catchwords, key phrases, and technical jargon to keep the bad stuff out. So there were some things that needed to be, needed to be done in that respect as well. There are two copies. What we'll do is, um, according to the Constitution, I think we're supposed to post this 30 days prior to a congregational meeting. And... Um, The way I set this up is there's a a line like point number one in just regular face type. And then following that, there is a point number one in bold face type. That's the change. That way you can look at it, see what it was and what it's being changed to. Some of it's just format. Some of it's adding verses. Uh, Nothing extremely substantive. But uh, these will be posted downstairs along with a sign-up sheet. So if you want your own personal copy, if you sign up, someone will make a copy for you, and then it will be available to you. So those will be posted. thought there was a third announcement. Is there a third announcement? Third announcement. Tommy Minolakis went to be with the Lord last week, and the graveside service was held last Saturday, but the memorial service will be held on Tuesday, January 4th at 2 p.m. here at the church. Okay, any other announcements? Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. We continue our study of James 4, 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's the second half of the verse. Submit therefore to God, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, in for the last month, I think, we have been looking at principles of spiritual warfare and understanding the backgrounds that we must in terms of the angelic conflict and Satan in order to accurately understand the significance of the command to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Having said that, we are now at a point where we are studying the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. By way of review, first of all, God created a vast host of rational spirit beings in eternity past. We saw that these were called angels from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. 
It's an innumerable host. Revelation describes them as myriads upon myriads. We do not know how many there are, but they are each created individually. Angels do not marry, neither do they procreate. So there is not a constitutional unity among the angels as there is with human beings. Therefore, since we are all one in Adam, in Adam's fall, as the old Puritan primer said, in Adam's fall we sinned all. And so there, because there's a constitutional unity in the human race, there's a constitutional fall that affects every single human being, and there can therefore be a redemptive solution that affects the entire human race. For their abode, point number two, God created a vast universe. We saw from Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 6, that they were all present, unified. There was no discord among the sons of God, a technical term for the angels, when God created the universe and laid the foundation of the earth. So apparently he created the angels first and then created a vast universe. Unlike the present universe, except for the planet Earth, which was the seat of power for the cherub Lucifer, and was in all likelihood, I misspelled that word, all likelihood the location for the pre-Adamic throne of God as Eden, the garden of God, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, 14 and following. Point number three, this cherub was known as Lucifer, the son of the morning. He became arrogant and lusted for divine power, prerogatives, and position, and fell from his place of honor. He enticed a third of the angels to go with him. We don't know how long the angelic revolt took place, but we do know that at some point God drew the line. And point number four, the Supreme Court of Heaven convened a trial, found Lucifer and the fallen angels guilty, and then sentenced them all to, to the lake of fire, Matthew 25:41 the perfect tense there the lake of fire have has having been prepared for the devil and his angels indicates that the lake of fire is already in existence the question then becomes why is the devil not in the lake of fire god obviously has postponed the execution of that sentence which leads us to point 5 satan objected to the verdict, accused God of being unfair, unjust, unrighteous, of not giving him a chance and an opportunity to rule and to demonstrate that he did have the ability to function as God. So, point six, God graciously postponed the execution of the sentence to give Satan and all the angels an object lesson in his grace, his grace, his wisdom, and his justice. The human race was then created. The universe was re fashioned, reformed in six literal 24-hour days and the human race was created and the angels looked down upon us to discover doctrines and truth about God they could discover in no other way. There. They could discover in no other way. 1 Corinthians 4.9 states, For I think... God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have been a spectacle to the world, Paul says, both to angels and to men. So his imagery there is that it's as if we're in a great coliseum, and the angels and the human race are watching us as believers, because our testimony is significant in this great angelic trial. 1 Peter 1.12 Peter states it was revealed to them, that is in the Old Testament, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by means of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he concludes by saying, things into which the angels long to look. That's 1 Peter 1.12. So apparently from that, that there are things that are going on in the human race in terms of God's relationship to man and man's relationship to God and his redemptive plan and solution that is so foreign to the angels that they are actually learning things about God, his attributes, his essence, and about his grace and his justice through watching us. So we are on display as trophies of the grace of God. Other passages that also describe the significance of angels watching the human race 
or 1 Corinthians 11.10 and 1 Timothy 5.21. And then point number seven, Satan is, of course, a very real personality. It's often the case that you find people who want to say Satan really doesn't exist, that's just a metaphor for evil, or there's just a, it's just an illustration of a personification of evil or some myth. But the Scripture refers to him by personal names, such as uh, the anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28.14, the ruler of demons in Luke 11.15, the ruler of this world, John 16.11, the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and the prince and the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. 2. He is called Satan or Shatan from the Hebrew 52 times in the scripture, and that is a title that means adversary. It was a legal term that was sometimes applied to a, to a, a defense attorney or a prosecutor in a trial. At, in Thirty-five times he is described as the devil, Diabolos, which means slanderer. So he is a very real personality, and he is the enemy of all believers. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he is described as a lion who goes about the earth, prowling about, looking to see whom he might devour, looking for opportunities to uh, gain a victory in the angelic conflict. Now, the solution is given very briefly in James 4.7b, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And in order to understand what it means to resist the devil, we need to look at the defense mechanism God has provided in Ephesians chapter 6, which is called the armor of God. Ephesians 6.10 states, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is a summary statement of what Paul is going to describe through this metaphor of the armor. Now, the thing to remember about this uh, this whole description is that it is simply that it's an illustration. The time that Paul wrote Ephesians, he was a prisoner in Rome and had been a prisoner for a couple of years. If you take it all the way back to the time that he was first thrown in jail in Caesarea, and then he was on the ship and went through the shipwreck and he was taken to Rome. And for about two years, he waited in Rome before his trial came up. And during that time, he was under house arrest. Some think he was actually chained to a guard. I think that there was just a, a, a cohort there that, that regularly had one or two guards outside of his room. He, he was fairly free inside of his quarters, but he could not leave. But during this time, he had more than, an more than adequate opportunity to observe the conduct, the dress, the accoutrements of the Praetorian Guard, which was an elite unit within the Roman army. And as he was watching them, and he saw their, their dress, and he saw all of their armor, he drew an analogy with the spiritual life and the protection that God has provided for us. In the same way, I have developed the analogy of a soul fortress. These are just, just analogies. And one of the reasons we know that they are analogies is that, for example, in, in the uh, description of the armor in Ephesians chapter 6, we're told that to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Yet, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul uses this armor analogy again. And there he says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So there is some similarity, but he uses this same analogy and he moves it around. And just because it's a breastplate of righteousness over in Ephesians 6 doesn't mean that there is an actual, physical, literal breastplate of righteousness. He uses the imagery of armor just to communicate the overall concept of God's protection for the believer. The Old Testament used the same types of metaphor. talked about God is our rock, that He is our bulwark, He is our fortress, He is our shield. All of these different images are designed to communicate the principle that it is in God and God alone that we have our protection. In fact, the suffering servant, who is a prophetic image in Isaiah of the Messiah puts on the same type of armor. I think that as Paul was in his, in his uh, 
uh, room there. He was probably meditating somewhat on Isaiah 59:17, where it describes the Messiah in prophecy. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. So throughout the Bible, you have this imagery, this martial imagery of war, warfare and the protection of God in the midst of spiritual warfare. It's very important. So Ephesians 6.10 begins, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The key verb here is the command to be strong. It is in dunamao in the Greek. It's a present passive imperative. Now we've studied this and we've seen the present imperatives indicate a standing operating procedure in the spiritual life as opposed to aorist imperatives, and we'll see those in this passage. Aorist imperatives indicate something that is of crucial, vital importance for the moment. Uh, present imperative indicates a general uh, mandate for the Christian life, whereas an aorist imperative stresses its priority, its significance. Do this right now. The present tense indicates it's a standard operating procedure. The passive voice indicates that the subject receives the action. So we are to be strong in the Lord. So the subject is you, the believer. As believers, we receive our strength from outside of ourselves. It is not up to us. One of the biggest problems we've seen in cosmic thinking in our age, in other ages there were other problems, for example in the Enlightenment, which was dominated by an emphasis on rationalism or empiricism, man thought that he was smart enough, brilliant enough, in order to perceive truth. In empiricism, man thinks that experience is such that if he can test it, validate it, have enough case studies that he can derive from these case studies uh, important principles about spiritual warfare. In fact, that is a procedure that has been adopted by more than one person in recent years and has led to a lot of confusion about spiritual warfare. And there's one particular writer who I think now, I read something this week, he's the head of the theology department at Moody Bible Institute. He wrote a massive tome, several, about, about I think it came out in 86 or 87, called Demon Possession and the Christian. And at the end, his conclusion is that the Bible is very uh, vague about whether or not a Christian can be demon-possessed. So since the Bible really doesn't give enough evidence one way or the other, then we just have to decide it on the basis of our experience. And his conclusion is basically that since I have over 300 case studies in my files of Christians who are demon-possessed, therefore Christians must be demon-possessed. This is, it's very easy to succumb to this kind of reasoning. Uh, Merrill Unger, who is a very well-known scholar, professor of Old Testament at Dallas Seminary, wrote a book called Biblical Demonology that's a classic in the subject, came out in the early 50s, and he stated in there that Christians could not be demon-possessed. Then he received thousands and thousands of letters from missionaries overseas stating that they had dealt with all these cases of Christians who could be demon-possessed. So... Unger then traveled, saw these cases, and on the basis of experience, not on the basis of study from the Word of God, but on the basis of experience, decided that Christians could, after all, be demon-possessed. See, this is the problem, is that we place our ultimate authority on either our reasoning, our human reason called rationalism or empiricism, or in our age, remember the study we did back in August on postmodernism, the basic seat of authority in a postmodern, emotional, mystically oriented culture is intuition. That somehow I meet a person, they have all kinds of problems, they scream, they yell, they voice a, a barrage of obscenities at me, foam at the mouth. I intuitively know that they must be demon-possessed. And why do I intuitively know this? Because I have identified in mysticism... Christians are identifying their intuition with the inner voice of the Holy Spirit. And then you'll always find somebody go to Romans chapter 8 
where it says the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit. And they'll say, well, the Spirit tells me this. And so they immediately go into subjectivity and they identify the Holy Spirit with what I call liver quiver or, uh, you know, this kind of inner warm fuzzy feeling or whatever it is. And the problem with that is that the verse in Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirit what? That we are a child of God. Period. Doesn't say the Holy Spirit tells us all kinds of information that we need to know uh, to our spirit. It just says that there is this confirmation, this sense that there is an assurance of our salvation communicated by God the Holy Spirit and nothing more. So we have to be very careful that we do not just rely on intuition and think that because we have a certain feeling, a sense of evil, whatever, that, that our intuition is necessarily right. Uh, the, the assumption there is that we're just automatically going to be able to discern these things. And the danger is that in the spiritual realm, we are absolutely ignorant. You cannot see demons You cannot see angels. You cannot see what they look like, what they do, what they're capable of. If the Lord were to open the veil tonight, we would be astounded at what is going on around us. It is the same thing that took place with uh, Elisha in the Old Testament as the armies of the king were coming to surround him and his servant Gehazi was scared to death, and Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And the Lord pulled back the veil, and he saw that the hills were covered with angelic armies designed to protect Elisha from his enemies. And so we have the protection of the Lord. He is the one in whose strength we must reside. And he is the one who has the capability, the power because he is omnipotent, the knowledge because he is omniscient to know all that is going on and he has provided for us. So we are to be strong in the Lord. This is not something that comes automatically, but is the result of spiritual growth. This means that uh, if you're a baby believer, you do not automatically acquire this strength. It comes only through the process of learning the Word of God, studying doctrine and advancing through spiritual infancy to spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence, spiritual adulthood, through the utilization of the stress busters. And as a result of that, then our soul is edified, the Scripture says. It's built up, and that gives us strength to handle whatever situation we may run into. Now, the idea of indunamao is to cause someone to have the ability to enable them, to strengthen them, to empower them, to make them able. So the point is that God is the one who makes us able to handle the situation in spiritual conflict. At the moment of salvation, God has provided us with an innumerable number of grace assets. The only way we know about demons is from the Word of God. Now, you can get out there and you can go from one culture to another that never had any exposure to the Word of God, and they have some concept of evil spirits and demons, but it's vague and it differs from culture to culture and they have all kinds of ideas, but the only thing that gives us any surety and certainty is from the Word of God. In the same way, that's the only way that you find out what you have, what God has given you, so that you can handle uh, spiritual conflict. Now, this scripture says that we are to put on then the full armor of God for the purpose that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now the first thing we need to notice is that the word put on is an aorist passive imperative. An aorist imperative stresses priority in the spiritual life. This is different from the standard operating procedure of the present imperative, which we saw before, and emphasizes the immediate significance of fulfilling this command. The believer is compared by analogy to the Roman soldier. When the Roman soldier would bivouac and set up his tents, they were very disciplined. Everything was in in a row. All of their tents were in a row. And outside the tent, they would stack their equipment. 
And so the command would come that the enemy's coming, they would come out of their tent, everything would be in its proper place, and they would grab their breastplate, their helmet, their sword, their, their belt that girded everything about them, and they would immediately put them on. They had a procedure for putting that on so that in just a few moments they were completely dressed and ready for combat. We're told to put on the full armor of God. This emphasizes advancing to spiritual maturity. I am amazed how few pastors and even seminaries today really have a vision for taking people all the way to spiritual maturity. The active voice emphasizes the fact that this is your responsibility to learn what the armor is and to learn how to put it on so that you can be uh, defended in the day of battle. Now, the verse goes on to say that purpose clause that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Looks like we have a mass exodus from down below. Is it? Come on in, kids. Find your folks and sit down. Get comfortable. Okay, now that the kids have come in. Okay, kids, you're up here with all the adults now. It gives you an opportunity to show your parents how well-behaved you can be, how quiet you can be, so that everybody else can go about learning, learning the Word. And you came in very quietly. I want to commend you for that. That was very well done. Put on the full armor of God. See, kids, we're studying a great passage tonight about battle and armor. That will appeal to Matt, boys, talking about armor and fighting. Put on the full armor of God. This allows you to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, the term... For armor of God is the word panoplion to theu, which means the full armor, not just partial armor. And then there's a purpose clause here, to be able to stand firm, which is stani in the Greek. It's an aorist infinitive, and the dictionary form of this verb is histemi. Now, there are two words that we're going to um, see in this study, and that is histeme and anthistemi. They're very similar. Histeme. See, now you see how different my scribble looks then. Real, real Greek. And anthistemi. Okay, they both have the root histeme and this hat. The second word has the prefix from the preposition anti, which strengthens it. Both have the same concept of standing still, standing firm, holding your ground. They were used in military context to indicate defense, or football to indicate defense, holding your ground. Now, everybody knows that you can't win a football game with just the defense. You can't win in the military with just, just the defense. But in terms of the angelic conflict and spiritual warfare, we are commanded to go on the defense. Why? Because we do not have what it takes to operate in the angelic realm. Only God has that ability, so we have to do what Moses did in the Old Testament. It took a while for Moses to learn this. In fact, the first time Moses ran up against a major problem in Ezekiel chapter 2, he decided to handle the problem himself. So when he saw an Egyptian overseer beating some of the slaves, he killed him. Well, that obviously is wrong. It's a sin. In fact, I've always been amazed at how, few, how many people overlook the fact that several significant portions of the Bible have been written by murderers. Just think about that. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he was a murderer. David wrote the Psalms, and, and uh, he was a murderer. Probably taught many of the Proverbs to Solomon. We have uh, 
Paul in the New Testament wrote the lion's share of the New Testament, and he was a murderer. That indicates the grace of God that the sins that we think are so heinous, God paid for, Christ paid for on the cross, and so there is salvation, and there's nothing we can do that takes away from that. Now, we are involved in a defensive position, and as I said, Moses learned that he can't do it himself. It took 40 years on the back side, that means the west side of the wilderness, before he learned the principle that the battle was the Lord's. And when the Jews escaped from Egypt and they had their freedom, one of the first things they had to learn was the principle of freedom through military victory because they ran into a mass migration of one of the uh, strongest military uh, migratory forces in the ancient world, and that was the Amalekites. And they had to go into battle, and they were outnumbered, and they were outclassed by the Amalekites. And uh, they had not had any training. The Jews had not had any training. They didn't understand any of the concepts of, of the martial arts at that time. And the Amalekites did. But God said that He would give the Jews victory. And so it signified Moses' trust in the Lord. He had to hold his arms up. And Moses instructed the people to stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. And he stood there with his arms up. And when he'd get tired, his arms would drop and the Jews would begin to lose. And so he got Aaron on one hand and her on the other hand to hold his arms up. And the Jews had victory. But he learned the principle that the believer is supposed to stand still to see the deliverance of the Lord. And when the Jewish scribes translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek... Guess what Greek word they used to translate Moses' command to stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. It's the word we're studying in this context, histemi. And it means to take up a defensive position. And the apostle uses it about, uses either histemi or anthistemi about five times in this passage in Ephesians chapter 6 to emphasize the principle that the believer is not to be engaged in offensive action against Satan and the demons because we do not know what's going on. In fact, this is an argument from experience, and I acknowledge that, but in all the years that I've studied this issue and been involved in this and done some debates on this issue, and Tommy, whom I wrote the book on spiritual warfare with, has also been in debate, we never seem to run into pastors who have problems with demon possession unless they're open to the fact that Christians can be demon-possessed. Now, the retort that we hear is that, well, since you don't believe in it, you never see it. Frankly, I think that if somebody's bouncing off the walls, throwing up split pea soup or whatever, and uh, screaming obscenities and ripping their clothes off, and or if they're breaking iron chains, that we would somehow recognize that if demon possession was a possibility. But it seems to be that only the pastors and ministries that, that believe that Christians can demon, be demon-possessed seem to find it. And so I think that uh, they're predisposed. And I also think the problem is that uh, so many Christians just have a, a superficial view of the depravity of the sin nature, so that when they see people involved in certain activities or they, they just can't believe that that just comes from the depravity of their own of their own sin nature. Now, Satan has various strategies. This passage says that if we are strong in the Lord, that um, one of these days I'm going to learn how to use this little projector, and we're going to have some really slick uh, things. But until then, you're just going to have to put up with my ineptness here. Well, we'll just forget that. The point is that the, the passage teaches that When we put on the full armor of God, we can take up a defensive posture and we're protected against the schemes of the devil. And the Greek word for schemes is methodeia, which means cunning stratagems. Satan has all sorts of schemes 
to distract believers from the truth, to distort the truth, and to destroy the witness of Christians and to blind unbelievers to the truth of the gospel. His greatest strategy always seems to involve the various philosophies and religions in the world. The Bible warns us that every way apart from God's way of thinking is demonic. Remember our study in James chapter 3, 13 through 15, which defined human thinking as earthly, natural, and the Greek word is soulish, that is apart from regeneration, the same word used to describe the unbeliever. It's earthly, natural, and demonic. Now, most of us don't think that certain views, certain philosophies such as existentialism or pragmatism, idealism, Platonism, Aristotelianism, whatever it might be, that certain ideologies, certain philosophies of life are demonic. But what the Scripture says is anything that does not align 100% with the thinking of God's Word is demonic. It, it is aligned with the same kind of thinking as Satan and the demons. Why? Because at its core is based the idea that man, independent from God, has the ability to understand and define reality without submitting to the authority of God and His revelation. All of this goes under the title of the cosmic system. In the Greek, the word is cosmos. And under cosmic system, we find a number of demonic deceptions, moral relativism, situational ethics, the postmodern thought of today, as well as the modern thought of a generation ago and enlightenment thinking a century ago. We find the New Age movement with all its emphasis on angels and and uh, spiritism and uh, necromancy and all of that is all part of Satan's cosmic system. He has thousands of different things, but they all have certain things in common. All the various social experimentation programs from feminism to gay rights are all part of Satan's agenda. The proliferation of pagan religions and apostate Christian cults. All of this is defined in the Scriptures as the doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4.1. In one of his parables, Jesus says that Satan's job or Satan's role is to take the word from the mind so that they will not believe and be saved. All of these schemes include political ideas which promote global economies and international bodies of law and international law courts. One of the things that we don't see much on the news here in the United States, at least I don't, is how many countries in Europe and Asia are suing one another, are taking one another to court over one thing or another. Now, to what higher body of law does one appeal when you have two nations fighting it out in a law court? What gives that higher body uh, the authority to make or hand down judicial decisions. Where do we get the authority to have a world court or a world monetary uh, system? All of this is Satan's attempt in order to unify the human race against God. All of his schemes include various criminal justice concepts that give more rights to the criminal than to the victim, as well as temptations to arrogance, self-reliance, self-absorption, and substituting human-based thinking in the guise of uh, psychology, sociology, and science, which cause people to think that they can achieve a certain level of success and happiness in life apart from God. All of this is it, we are warned against in the Scriptures. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, that is, the cosmic system, all of these ways of thinking. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, see the core elements of cosmic thinking, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, once again, John juxtaposes two ways of doing things. It's either God's way or, the, or Satan's way, and there's no in-between. James 4.4, 4, which we studied recently, 
You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, with the cosmic system, is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend, if you wish to go along with certain elements of cosmic thinking, then you make yourself an enemy of God. You see, the greatest danger from Satan is not demonism, demon possession, or demon oppression. The greatest danger from Satan is all of these various thought systems that seem to supply an element of success and happiness and seem to be beneficial to the human race because they work. See, American culture is fraught with pragmatism. Most people believe that if something works, it must be right. Except the Scripture says that what is right is what God says is right, and that will eventually always work. Too often we want to substitute that which is immediate for that which is long-term. The battlefield is ultimately spiritual and takes place between your ears. The battlefield is not outside of yourself. It is a battle against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now the word uh, pale, which is translated struggle, refers to hand-to-hand combat. It was used frequently to describe a wrestling match. Now I'm not talking about the kind of wrestling match that you see with the uh, on television with whatever it is, the World Wrestling Federation or whatever it is, which is more drama and uh, and uh, whatever. I'm not sure what it is, and I don't. I'm not real sure. Maybe some of you like it. I'm not sure why people really, really uh, uh, are entertained by that. But nevertheless, in the ancient world, often when they had wrestling matches. It was unto death. And that's the idea that underlies this world, that this word. It is a, a death struggle. It is for our very spiritual lives. And our struggle is not against mortal flesh. That's the term flesh and blood. In the Greek, it's reversed. It's really blood and flesh. That was their idiom. We reverse it in our idiom to flesh and blood, indicating uh, that which is in the physical world. See, so often we identify our enemies in terms of a uh, certain political system, in terms of a certain politician, in terms of a certain country or nation or policy. But what the Scripture says is ultimately the real battle is against spiritual forces. It is against Satan. It is against all of the demons that are arrayed on his side and the demonic armies. And it is they who are putting these ideas into the human race. And it is that against which we are struggling. So our greatest enemy is not necessarily people. Our greatest enemy is the invisible army that is working behind the scenes. And these are classified by rank here. Rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness. Now Paul really doesn't go on to explain what these mean and what their significance is. But we find similar classifications in Colossians 2.15 and 1 Peter 3.22. What we do learn from this is that the demon forces are organized and that there is a chain of command among the demon armies and they are working toward a unified purpose. And this entire army is arrayed against the body of Christ and against the believer. Yet we do not need to be afraid because we have the power of God and we have all of the spiritual assets, and God is the one who fights the battle for us. As David said when he fought Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. You see what has happened in the, our modern concept, context with these deliverance ministries is that people think on the basis of going out, and remember you have to follow their scientific methodology. You go out and you interview 500 people and they all seem to have some kind of problem with demons and you get all their information and then you collate that and you draw certain conclusions. It's using the scientific methodology and thinking that somehow we therefore can really see and understand and have all the data we need to investigate the spiritual matter. And then the solution. Now we have people who are demon-possessed. How are we going to solve the problem? Well, let's experiment with this solution and that solution And the reason they have to take this approach is because the Bible never says anything 
about demon possession in believers or its solution. Now remember, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 states that God has given us everything pertaining to life and the spiritual life. Now let's just take that as an assumption. If God says that He has given the spiritual life, don't you think that at the very least, at the very minimum, that would include something about the fact that you as a believer can have your body co-opted by another entity and used for its agenda. If God has given us everything we need to know for life and godliness, yusubaya, which means a spiritual life, then that would include information about the spiritual realm and its solution. Since there is nothing said in any of the epistles about demon possession, much less demon possession of a believer, neither is there anything said in any of those epistles about the solution, in other words, how to cast out demons, what are the techniques, what are the skills you need to develop, then it would be a fair conclusion that the silence of the Scripture speaks volumes. But that's not what people do. They go out and they try to figure out the right formula, discover the correct technique, and then they write books about it. And people then think they they have the ability to discern whether or not somebody has a demon and they get involved in all sorts of uh, exorcisms. I remember 10 or 12 years ago when I was pastoring in Dallas, I had an assistant pastor who was working with me. He was a seminary student and and he and his wife had gotten involved counseling this young woman who had just a wealth of problems. And, and she lived with them for a short time. And she told them all sorts of stories about child abuse and sexual abuse. And I mean, it just was a horrible picture. And so this young man did not really know what to do. He had never met someone with such a um, vast array of problems. So he went to one of his seminary professors. And this particular professor was one of the three men who was getting involved with the vineyard movement at that time. And eventually he lost his position at Dallas because he violated the doctrinal statement. But he had drawn the conclusion from his experience, not from the Scriptures, that any time there is sex abuse, a demon's involved. Ah, and as soon as he heard that there was sexual abuse in this woman's life, he said, I know, we'll get together with these two other pastors we know over in Fort Worth, and we will uh, cast the demon out because there's got to be something. So they brought her over there, went through an all-night session, screaming, all kinds of things went on. Voices, five or six different demons identified themselves. Well, time went by after this this uh, exorcism and alleged casting out all of the demons. And uh, this young lady finally was forced to admit that she had made up nearly everything about her past and she came under the counseling care of, some, of a Christian psychologist who has very well-known national reputation. And she admitted that all of this was made up. So then we asked her, well, what happened in this episode in Fort Worth? And she said, well, I was just... See, this is the, this is the dynamics of carnality. We just do not realize how screwed up people can get when they're under the control of sin nature that there's approbation lust involved, there's fear, there's anxiety, all of this is working. She's just trying to do what everybody expects her to do. She's manufacturing all of this, and she admitted to that. And so there are just so many things that are going on that are beyond our immediate awareness that it is arrogance to look at these kinds of scenarios and then draw conclusions. And what I find that is so alarming about this is that people are building theology on the basis of anecdotes. And if I can come up with a thousand stories, then I can draw conclusions from that as to what's really going on, and nobody's looking at what the Scripture says. Now, Ephesians 6.13 gives us the solution. Therefore, take up the full armor of God 
Once again, we see the word analambano, the command there. It's a present active indicative indicating this is to be standard procedure in the spiritual life. We pick up the full armor for the purpose, hina plus a subjunctive, uh, in order that you might be able to stand, that you might be able to resist. And the Greek word there is our friend anthistemi. That's the word that's used in James 4.7. That's our passage. How then are we to resist the devil so that he will flee from you? By putting on the armor of God. It is the armor of God that allows us to resist the devil to fulfill the mandate in James 4.7 so that we can stand our ground and not be defeated in the angelic conflict. We take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. Notice it doesn't say to attack. It says to resist in the evil day, and the evil day is that particular time when you come, come into a certain adversity or conflict when the angelic conflict is raging around you. The armament of the soldier involves several different aspects, not all of which are included by Paul in this analogy. He just focuses on six. Romans wore a helmet. It was made of leather and then covered with strips of metal. had a breastplate that was primarily leather and also covered with strips of metal. Sometimes it was made out of brass for the officers. Or, uh, uh, he wore a thick leather belt which wrapped around his waist. From that belt there were wide leather strips that hang down. That was designed to protect his legs and to protect the middle area. Uh, it was also to this belt that was affixed his sword and his breastplate was tied for stability to that belt, so it was that belt that held everything together. He would take his tunic, he would pull it up and stick it inside that belt so that it wouldn't get in his way when he was involved in, in combat. He wore a combat, what I would call combat sandals. Some of you men have worn combat boots. Well, he had combat sandals called a caligai. He also had a shield a sword. He usually had a couple of javelins and carried about 60 pounds of equipment when he went into battle. Now, what we see here in this particular analogy that Paul uses is that we are to stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. So the image here is of the soldier who pulls up his, his uh, uh, tunic and gets it out of the way. This means that you clear the decks for battle for you Navy guys. You clear the decks, that means you get rid of the distractions in your life. You figure out what is it in your life that distracts you from making doctrine the number one priority in your life. And right now we have a big one. It's called Christmas. It's in everybody's way. And uh, people get so caught up in partying and visiting and everything else that it's hard to remember what the purpose of Christmas is. And that is that it's to worship the birth of our Savior. And we get caught up in gift-giving. We put pressure on ourselves. We get caught up in all kinds of unrealistic expectations, thinking that, that this Christmas will be the best time we've had with our family. And sometimes if you have wonderful families, that can be a wonderful time of the year. But sometimes, especially if you're a believer, and if there's a lot of conflicts or unbelievers in the family, it can be a miserable time. And it's very hard for some people at this time of year, people who are, are uh, alone. It's a real test for them to rely upon the Lord. So they have to realize what their priorities are and gird up their loins. That means to get rid of the distractions, focus on the truth. And the truth here is all of the principles and precepts that are encapsulated in the Scriptures, and that is what we call Bible doctrine. Notice that the first word here, the command, is to stand firm, and it is the aorist, uh, active, or, or it's the present active indicative of histamine. Notice this word again, how many times Paul repeats this word. What do you think the point is? Stand your ground. He doesn't say advance, he doesn't say attack. Simply stand your ground. The belt is this huge belt that was called the baldric that the Roman soldier would tie up, pull tight around his waist, and then he would tie all of his equipment to that. Paul calls it the truth because it is the truth of Bible doctrine, the principles and precepts of divine revelation 
that hold everything together in our lives. It is the truth of God's Word that gives us stability in times of adversity and conflict in our lives. It is the truth of God's Word that sets the believer free from the rule of the sin nature and the domination of human viewpoint thinking, which is also called demonic thinking. Remember, it was rejection of the truth that led to Adam's disobedience. It was reliance upon the truth that was the bulwark of Jesus' defense against the devil's temptations in Matthew chapter 4. Truth was the fortress of David's mental attitude in Proverbs 20:28. Truth denied was what led to the death of Ananias and Sapphira as they followed the thoughts and the temptations of the father of lies in Acts 5:3 put together with John 8:44. Truth is a defensive weapon. It is not an offensive weapon. The whole concept of armor is designed to do what? It is designed to defend the individual and to protect him. What we'll see, even when you get to the sword of the Spirit, the machaira, the short sword, is seen in this analogy not as an offensive weapon, but as a defensive weapon used in the counterattack. But it is not, it is simply designed to protect the believer, and we'll see how it's used in a minute. So we stand firm, having girded our loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now this involves two aspects. It involves both imputed righteousness from our salvation at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation of our protection. But then if you are a believer and you get involved in disobedience to God and carnality and extended carnality and you're living a life that is characterized by all types of mental attitude sins and overt sins and sins of the tongue, then you have already been defeated in spiritual warfare. So the breastplate of righteousness here is not simply imputed righteousness, but imputed righteousness that is then parlayed into practical or experiential righteousness as you grow and advance in the spiritual life, applying doctrine in your life, living a life under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, so that divine good, the production of the Holy Spirit, is produced in your life. That is what protects the believer in spiritual warfare. In verse 15, see this is the problem with this new technology, is you get ahead of yourself and lose your focus. I'm done. Ephesians 6.15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of feet. Now, the Roman soldier wore this caligae, a hobnail, studded, half-inch thick, studded leather sole that protected his feet. Nothing's more important to an infantry soldier than his feet. Once he, he has bad boots and has problems with his feet, then his mobility is limited. So, what we are talking about here is that which provides foundation and mobility to the soldier. It is the gospel of peace. Romans 5.1, we are told that the essence of reconciliation, the totality of what Christ did on the cross, was peace. Peace between man and God. But it is on the basis of that peace that we have with God that is parlayed into a practical peace. Philippians chapter 4 says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this is not simply the gospel in terms of having been saved, but is the practical benefits of that from the Prince of Peace who gives us that peace of mind, that inner emotional stability during times of crisis. And Ephesians 6.16 says, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. So the shield of faith is the faith rest drill. This is when it takes place when you believe that the Word of God is more real to you than your circumstances, your emotions, your feelings, or your intuitions. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says that we are to walk by means of faith and not by sight. 
It is faith that overcomes the cosmic system in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. And we resist the devil by means of faith, 1 Peter 5, 8. So it is trusting God and His Word, not trusting our experience. As a shield, faith means that this is a radical reliance upon the reality of God's Word. It wards off the variety of assaults the devil makes, whether it's temptation in terms of uh, appeal to lust, whether it is an appeal to mental attitude sins or overt sins, or whether it is simply attractive alternative philosophies of life. The shield of faith protects from all of them. Notice that little word. It says that it is faith, it is doctrine and the application of the faith rest drill which is able to extinguish all of the flaming missiles of the evil one. This is the sufficiency of the cross and the sufficiency of grace. The believer does not need to go out and develop various techniques on the basis of experience and experiment in order to discover what works in spiritual warfare. The scripture is sufficient. And then in verse 17 The armor is completed and take the helmet of salvation, which notice that the helmet of salvation surrounds the head. It is that which protects the head, the seat of the soul, from injury in spiritual warfare. I think that is an indication that, again, that a believer cannot be demon-possessed because that is where that would take place. The uh, helmet of salvation protects the believer because he is saved from demon possession and being indwelt by a demon. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the word here translated, Word of God, is not the word logos, which has to do with the principles of God's Word, but it is the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A, which has to do with the applied word. Now, you have studied the temptations of Jesus in in the wilderness when, when after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Satan came to him with three temptations. Now, we don't have time to go through those in detail, but in each one of those cases, Satan tempted the Lord and he either used a principle from the Old Testament or in two cases he quoted the Word of God, and he quoted it and distorted it and misapplied it. How did Jesus answer? Every time he answered, he quoted a passage of Scripture. In other words, it's thrust and parry. Thrust and parry. Thrust and parry. Satan would attack with the thrust, and the Lord used the Word, the sword of the Spirit, to parry the thrust. He did not engage in offense. He parries the thrust He does not drive the point home. It is not offensive at all in the way he uses the Scripture in Matthew 4.1. So that's the illustration of how the sword of the Spirit is used in the believer's life. Now all of this is strengthened and is involved in an attitude of prayer with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in numity by means of God the Holy Spirit. We have seen this phrase again and again. It is not... I was reading an author on spiritual warfare last night, and he said it was praying in the Spirit. And when we're together and we pray, God the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us what we are to say and what we are to do. And and This is mysticism. It is using intuition and confusing that with what the Scripture says. And it is so sad that here, here this particular writer is the head of the master's program at what used to be a good seminary, Talbot. And that what's happening, as I said last week, is that, that more and more people are getting caught up in experiential theology. It's theology, it's anecdotal theology. It's not biblical theology. And the way they distort the scripture is just amazing and frustrating to me. Because what the Scripture tells us is so phenomenal that God has provided for us in His grace perfect solutions to all of our problems, even those that we're unaware of in the spiritual realm. God has given us more than enough 
spiritual assets to solve every single problem in our lives. And all we have to do is learn what these assets are so that we can take up the full armor of God and utilize that and reside in that armor, whether we're talking about the armor of God or the soul fortress or however we want to use the image, God provides everything to protect us and we need to be like David saying the battle is the Lord's and Moses stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord and there's no room at all to be motivated by fear and anxiety that somehow we can, we can pick up a demon, we can go get involved with some object that has a demon with it and suddenly we're demon possessed or demon oppressed and we have all kinds of problems. That's not the issue. The issue is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, moving forward in the spiritual life, and God takes care of everything else. It is not something that should be a focus or worry in the believer's life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your magnificent grace that not only have you provided for us a salvation that goes far beyond anything we could ever imagine or hope for, but you have provided a spiritual life and the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit who leads and directs us, who teaches us, and you have given us your word. And it is your word that works with your spirit and your spirit who uses your word to give us wisdom and discernment and to advance us to spiritual maturity. And I pray that we'd be challenged by the things that we study today, that we might continue to go forward and advance in our spiritual life for your glory, that you might be glorified in the angelic conflict. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.